So the first thing we need to do in this important discussion uh, is to establish what the Torah says about this issue, okay? Because there is, there's just a conflict. And, if, um, and when I say conflict, I mean the conflict between what the Torah says and what society says about this issue. The issue is, is yeah, it's homosexuality. Someone say it too loud because there's some kids around here or whatever. Um, and, and this is a true thing, that there's, an, there's a conflict between what society says about the issue, what the Torah says about the issue. Uh, and the people that uh, do not address the issue like we are going to address it, right, truthfully and honestly, they try to weasel out of it by trying to make it a non-issue. And they're being disingenuous. They're not being fair. Because clearly there exists a conflict between what the Torah says about this issue, about homosexuality, and what society today believes, well, for the most part, but at least the trend in society, uh, the, the direction that it's moving towards. So let's first, we want to make first unequivocally understand what the Torah does say about it. Uh, and only, only once we understand what the Torah says about it can we go about to try to uh, understand where the conflict lies and trying to see if there's any room for reconciliation. We go with that, guys? Yes. Uh, okay, so the first source, there's two sources, two verses, very important verses in Leviticus. One of them in chapter 18, one of them in chapter 20. So only a few pages away from each other. Um, source number one is, uh, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. Thus, the Torah bans... Um, Okay, so to repeat, the first verse is in Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, it says that you shall not lie with a man like one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. That's what the verse says, uh, and it's in every single Torah scroll. Which pasuk is this? Chapter 18, Perek Yudchet, verse 22, Chafbet. Okay? Now, the, uh, the next verse is only is less than two chapters later. And it says as follows, a man, this is, a, this is the best translation, the Arsenal translation. Uh, a man who lies with another man as one lies with a woman, they have both, both done an abomination, they shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. It's a verse in the Torah, and there's no way to run away from it. Yes, a man who lies with a man as one lies with a woman, they have both done an abomination, they shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. So let's just... Uh, organize what the Torah says about it. It gives two verses. Both of them talk about a man lying with another man. Does it say anything about a woman lying with another woman? No. Does it? No. It doesn't. So while our society has lumped these two issues together, the Torah has not. The Torah mentions, in fact, in fact there's no verses anywhere in the Torah that mention anything about two women lying with each that, other. That, that when, when the Torah says man, it means men and women? I mean, does it mean people? No. It says okay, a man and a woman. It's right. Just 100%. And in fact, the Talmud is the first to introduce the idea of two women being with each other. And while it says that it's not uh, encouraged, it's strictly, by the strict Torah law, there's nothing uh, prohibited with that kind of behavior. It's not encouraged, obviously. It's not in the, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the, the atmosphere that the Torah is obviously uh, espousing. No one can deny that. And the Rambam talks about it, how it's, 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 not, it's not proper, but it's not prohibited under the same category, for sure. Okay? That's the first thing we say, number one. Uh, number two, it doesn't say about someone who is gay. 
Does it mention anything about someone who is gay or is a homosexual? Okay, I, I have a problem with that gay. Gay is somebody carefree. I yeah, okay, so the term, okay, so we're, we're going with what society accepts. That's what, what, what it yes. used to be. Uh, no, now, no does it today. say anything about someone, what about if someone is straight but sleeps with another man? How can you mean? I don't know. It's, it's an abomination. No matter, what, no matter what you are, it's It doesn't say anything about that. Well, what if someone is a homosexual uh, and does not sleep with another man? Then he's okay. And he's okay. He doesn't say anything about homosexuals. It's very important. Does it say anything? Does not mention homosexuals. This is not a verse about homosexuals. It's a, it's a verse about homosexuality and the act of homosexuality. That's very important to distinguish. The Torah is not against gays or homosexuals. Uh, the Torah mentions only that this act is prohibited and it's prohibited on pain of death, which is the next thing which we have to stress. That's, and we'll, we'll have to address this heads on because that seems very excessive, we would say, at least in today's society. Um, and that is what the Torah says about the issue. And if we were to try to avoid any conflict, what we would try to do is either try to interpret the words of the Torah and skew them into what we want them to be, i.e. to corrupt the integrity of the Torah by saying, uh, well, the Torah doesn't mean that, or the Torah says that a man shouldn't sleep with another man like he sleeps with a woman, but like you sleep with a man is fine. Right? There are a lot of people that have tried those kind of approaches of trying to finagle their way out of the problem by saying that the Torah says nothing about homosexuality. And that is, to me, that's the worst corruption of, of all. To, to try to take what the Torah says and make it compatible with what you think is the greatest injustice someone could do to the Torah. Because essentially what you're saying is, is that what I hold is to be true is supreme, and therefore I'm going to find a way to make the Torah work with me. Instead of being the opposite. Instead of trying to learn from the Torah, I'm going to try to change the Torah because I, what I believe is true and is absolute and is immutable and is unchanging, and therefore the Torah has to be compatible with me. Therefore I'll corrupt the Torah in order that it's, it fits with what I think. So That's the worst. The Torah just talks about the sexual act. Mm-hmm. There's a point that we measure. That a man should not have sex with a man. That's what it says. Like, Correct. Like you would have with a woman. Yes. Uh, now. But why would the Torah have to address such a topic? They have well, a that's a good question. Well, let, 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 well, the Torah addresses a lot of sexual um, prohibitions. So yeah. they, 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 both of them, both of these set verses are part of bigger sections that deal with lots of, of, of laws of, of sexuality. And not all of them are homosexual. In fact, there's only one. Yeah. And a lot of them today would be likewise uh, seem excessive. Um, for example, the Torah says that a man cannot sleep with a woman while she's anida. Mm-hmm. Now, that? anida is a very normal thing. Well, what's anida? I mean, when, she's had, when she had a period. period. Well, yeah, that's right. The Torah says that. It's yeah. part of the same thing. And that's not something which is abnormal necessarily. And in fact, the Torah, the woman stays Anida until she goes to mikvah. Right. You know, animals? It mentions that as well. Well, that even our society, I think, still today, you know, is, is on board with that being wrong. But the Torah mentions a lot of things with regards to, to, to sexuality and prohibited uh, forms of, of that activity. And it says also married women. If someone sleeps with a married woman, uh, then they would be um, on pain of death. So and today, today we have websites. You know, they just hacked. There's a website called Ashley Madison. 
I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. No. Thankfully. Well, Ashley Madison is, a, is like a social network for affairs. That's what it is. Yeah, it's unbelievable, right? It's it's out <laughs> in the open the there, and the just just that's yeah, right, and just playmates. yes, and the tagline is "Life's too short, have an affair." That's the, that's their tagline. Uh, now, this shows us that society is very okay with adultery. The Torah says adultery is prohibited and paid to death. You know, and both, just both of them. Oh yeah, both of them. Okay. Of, course, yeah, of, course, okay. of course, of course, of course, of course. Well, because the Torah isn't prohibited. It's not? It's not. Torah prohibited. Okay, the thing is that if it says in this pasuk, in the verse, that a man should not sleep with another man, and it's just uh, talking to the male aspect, what about in Aseret Hatidot, it says you sh- shall not um, uh, covet your wife's, your husband's, your friend's, your wife. friend's wife. So also this is talking to a male, but the same thing for a woman. Absolutely. And, and it mentions, when it talks about women, it mentions that they're both under the same prohibition so, and they're both under the same punishment. So Absolutely. Not on this one? Well, if that one is talking to both of well, them... Well, because, because, like we said, a man sleeping with a married woman is prohibited. A woman sleeping with another woman is not prohibited by the Torah. Right? It doesn't, it's not prohibited. It doesn't mention it. We said it. Like we said. However, let's point out, just to be clear, that the Talmud does mention it and does say that this is not a good thing. But it's not anywhere near the stringency that is accorded with homosexuality in the male, male form. It's very important because we're not, we're not going with what actually does say, what, what's real and not what's no fiction, right? Um, society today lumps it all together. And that's, from the Torah's perspective, that's not, that's not, all, that's not true. Is, is it prohibited a lot between two women? Like we said, it's it's it's. Um, I, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I should have looked, should have looked it up probably. I do remember that the Talmud mentions it, and the Talmud mentions it in Yavamos, uh, in the book of Yavamos, and the Rambam does mention it as well. So I wouldn't say that it's permitted halachically. However, it's certainly not prohibited with any with with, with you know within uh, in any way near the severity of of homosexuality on the male of uh, variant where it's punishable pain to death. Talking about penetration, basically. That's right. Okay. Now, now. Um, because you said, like a woman yeah. well, playing with wasted seed. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's let let's uh, yes. Let's. Now, um, so. What did you say? Okay. Now I want to point out, there are like we said, there are a lot of people that are trying to avoid the problem by saying by corrupting the Torah. And there are other people that are going to try to, you know, just deny the existence of this verse or, cut, or not mention it. As if to say that there's not 5,845 verses, there's 5,843 verses. Take out two verses. Take a scalpel, cut them out. Both of those approaches are approaches that reject the Torah in its entirety and are so severe that the, that that if someone that, that that if someone rejects even one word of the Torah, it's as if they're rejecting the entire Torah. So it's very important for us to realize that there's no easy way out of this problem. It's a real problem. Right? If someone tries to corrupt the words of the Torah, the Talmud says that this is something that you have to give up your life to not do. It's a great. The Talmud says that there was a story where the Romans came and the Romans were asking questions about the Torah, 
and they were asking questions about things that could have implicated the Jews, and the Jews didn't change what the Torah said. And the question is, why not? Right? Because the Romans find out what, what the Torah really says, then they'll come kill you. Yeah. So how come you can't change the Torah? Right? And the answer is because changing the Torah, right, corrupting the Torah, is so severe that it's something you have to give up your life to do. Just like you don't do idolatry, adultery, and murder, right? It, to save your skin, you don't change the Torah to save your skin. So that's how important we have to realize it is. It, we cannot corrupt the Torah. What the Torah says is immutable and absolute. Additionally, we can't cut out verses in the Torah. If someone says, so this is a quote from the Talmud, they like say the Talmud is in Sanhedrin 99b, about 80%, 85% of the way down. I just saw it an hour ago. It's there. Talmud says, if, well, the, first the Mishnah says, if someone says, someone does not believe in the divinity of the Torah, they have no portion of what to come which means that they are not part of the Jewish people, and thus, they have no portion of what they come. And then the Talmud expands and says, if someone says that the entire Torah is true, besides for one verse, they are still included in the people that don't believe in the the Torah, and therefore they have no portion of what they come. Thus, if someone says that this is not from the Almighty, they don't have a portion of what they come. We have to realize how severe it is for us to try to take that other approach of trying to just ignore the issue or take the knife, the proverbial knife, or even the, God forbid, the, uh, the, uh, the actual knife and cutting these verses out. Um, now, let's try to, you know, so let's try to address it heads on. Okay? What do you guys say? Shall we? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I want to start from maybe the, probably the, what we would consider to be the most problematic aspect of this issue. Our society, that is. Uh, everyone has their own thoughts on the issue, I'm sure. Um, but society, clearly at large, has been growing more and more uh, accept, accept, accepting of this kind of behavior as normal. And therefore, the Torah says normal behavior is bad in the pain of death. It seems problematic. So I want to start from the most, the most problematic aspect of this conflict, uh, and that is the idea of this being something which is punishable by death. And... You know, it seems like it's not behavior that really bothers people, doesn't injure other people. It's not like you, you, know, you steal from someone or you rob or you beat someone or you, God forbid, murder someone. It doesn't, it's not that. You know, it's, it seems very severe to say that it's, it's, it's punishable, you know, by such a degree. Uh, now, I want to point out that the Talmud also says, or the Torah also says, that if someone desecrates the Shabbat, they get executed. Now, what does it mean to the guest at the Shabbat? To do one of 39 different things. One of them is writing two letters. So if someone takes a, a, a pen and writes a gimel and a gimel, two gimels, he wrote a word which says guide, which means a roof, the Talmud says you're punishable on pain of death. Is that not outrageous? Is that not, not excessive? It also sounds excessive. So it means the, the fact that the Torah is giving what we would deem as excessive punishment to homosexuality well, it's not unique to homosexuality. It's, there's other things as well. You know, is that, is that really the kind of society? Or is that, what the, really, what the, is, is that so severe? Is, is, is that something that warrants someone to be, to be, you know, even in today's society, in America, no one thinks that any other sin or any other uh, crime, aside from murder, should be warranted, uh, should be punishable by death. I'm curious about something. Go ahead. Why is it? This is punishable by death. That's punishable by death. What's the reason? So that's a very good question. So let's. So this is exactly what I wanted to get to. And 
I think that there's a, there's a uh, theoretical aspect and then there's a practical aspect. Um, let's start with the practically. Right? Practically, the Talmud says as follows. Um, a court, a Jewish court that executes once every seven years is a vindictive court. Which means that if a Jewish court is doing its duty, if a Jewish court is doing its duty, they will not execute someone more than once every seven years. That's one opinion. And then there's the other opinion that says, that no, it's not seven, it's 70 years. And that begs the question, well, is it, is it possible that people will actually, you know, someone, there's going to be someone who's going to write two letters on Shabbat or do something there's so many things that are executable offenses. What's the deal? Are the court's just incompetent? If, if, the, if, the, um, if the, um, the group of sins is so comprehensive and so seemingly insignificant or inconsequential, um, as that's where the Shabbat, but there's a whole list. It's not just that. Many of the sexual sins uh, are, are punishable by that offense. Um, like sleeping with your mother or your sister or your daughter, which are things that, you know, you know we don't, but, you know, adultery uh, as well. Um, idolatry was very common back in the day, you know, even, unfortunately, in some Jewish communities. How is it possible that the court's not going to execute once every seven, seven or seven, you know, at, at least maybe once a year or once an hour? You would think, like, the, the Jewish court would just set up shop outside of the synagogue, you know, Messiah's going to come to reestablish the Sanhedrin, Jewish court, and they'll just set up a booth outside of uh, Beth Yishurin and just execute people on Shabbos. Everyone who comes in, it should be executed, right? Does it, is that what's going to happen? Is that what it means? Well, and, and how is it possible that they didn't execute people more than once every seven, seven years? The answer is like this. And I have, once again, sources for this. The answer is that the Jewish court system is different than every other court system out there. How so? How so? They're not, they're not really doing justice. What they're doing is they're taking the uh, defensive position. Well, not only that. This is, you know, there's a, it's, they are doing justice, but what kind of justice and to whom? In order to be executed in a Jewish court of law, you know what has to happen? You have to have two witnesses. Additional but two witnesses. I was just going to, if they're in private, how does anybody know? They wouldn't know. Additionally, the two witnesses need to warn you before the act, don't do it, and if you do it, you'll get executed. Not only that... Can't be a man and wife, either. Not only that, what? Can't be a spouse. Oh, yeah, it's be kosher witnesses, and to be a kosher witness, it's very hard to find a kosher witness. I don't think, you know, there's not many kosher witnesses around, trust me. The laws of witnesses are very, very prohibitive. Not only that, the person has to say, that means the guilty offender has to say, I know that it's prohibited, and I know that I'm really executed. And I'm doing it despite that. Does that sound like a system of, court, uh, of law that is designed to actually adjudicate that law in a practical fashion? No. Uh, right, and certainly not. Now, I'll say another point. In the year 30 of the Common Era, 30 of the Common Era, so a little bit less than 2,000 years ago, Right? 1,985 years ago. Something unprecedented happened. Something that hadn't happened for hundreds and hundreds of years happened. And that is that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Jewish people, a court that was founded by Moses and that went on to outlast the temples by hundreds of years. Thus, it was an institution 
of central leadership for the Jewish people that was in existence for about 1,700 years uninterruptedly. And they made a decision to leave Jerusalem and to move elsewhere, to Yavne. Now, why would a court leave Jerusalem and move to Yavne? So the Talmud says the reason why they left is because they wanted to hamstring and handcuff all the Jewish courts. How so? All Jewish courts throughout the uh, area where the Jews had jurisdiction, which is pretty much everywhere the Jews lived, even though they were under Roma, Roman occupation, the courts would adjudicate capital law. However, they would only do it so long as the Sanhedrin is in Jerusalem. The verse says, the Torah says that if the Sanhedrin is in Jerusalem, then all the courts can do capital punishment. However, if the Sanhedrin leaves Jerusalem, then every other court cannot do capital punishment. Now, why would they do that? Why would they limit the power of the Jewish court? doesn't make any sense. Why would any court do that? The answer, says the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, is because the Jewish courts were too busy. The Jewish courts were too busy. And the question is, wait a minute, if the Jewish courts are too busy, they're too busy executing people, why would you stop them from executing people? It seems the opposite would be true. Like in a high crime area, you need more crime enforcement. You need more adjudication of the law, not less. Can you imagine? Like if there's a, a rise in crime, let's have less police, less judges. Does that make sense? The opposite seems to be true. Why would the Jewish courts say, we are no longer, we're going to force all the centers, we're going to force all the Jewish courts to abandon the threat of execution because they're doing it too often? What does this tell us? Think about this idea. Let's stop for a second. Well, this is unprecedented. It, it, seems, it seems counterintuitive, right? It seems like, well, when there is a multitude of offenses that demand capital punishment, you should have more power to the court, don't you think? It's difficult for the people to follow the law. I'm sorry? It's difficult for all the people. It's more than that. It's like that, but more. Could it be because they thought they were applying the death penalty for offense? For more offenses than they thought no. warranted no. the death penalty? No, 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 no. The answer is like this. Does it have to be? Right. But if they only did one out of 70 years, then... Well, what does that tell us? It, it tells us like this, that the court was not designed for mass executions. The Jewish court is designed for a nation that is on such a degree of piety and spirituality that to them... If someone writes two letters on Shabbat, of course it's an executable offense. When the entire nation accepts this kind of life and this kind of status, then it makes sense that they have this kind of adjudication. I think they left because they, they, the spiritualism left at the time. Not only that, it shows us what's the role of the Jewish court. It's not there to enforce Jewish law. It's there to oversee Jewish law. And that's why even the laws are not designed to actually execute people because we're not here to execute people, right? We're not supposed to execute people. We're supposed to just oversee that the Jewish people, when they're living at the level that the Torah demands of them, we're there to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Once there's lawlessness, lawlessness vis-a-vis -vis what the Torah says, okay, this is not the nation that we were designed to govern. And this is not the nation that we were designed to oversee. Thus, they withdrew and thus, they essentially stopped the, uh, the adjudication of capital punishment. 
So this is a very deep insight that when it says capital punishment, in a practical level, it's not there to just try to get as many prosecutions as possible. The opposite is true. And therefore, when it's, when the, A, from what the situation demands in every isolated incidence of a, a, a suspected uh, offender of capital punishment um, crime, and B, from the national sense and the role of the judge, of the courts. Uh, thus, I think it's very important for us. So, so then the question is, okay, so why, so why, so what, of what relevance does it have to us that when the Torah tells us that some um, things are prohibited on pain of death? Well, it tells us that the Torah treats it very seriously. The Torah is very, means in God's mind, and perhaps even in the Jewish nation's mind, when they are in their uh, best kind of setting and when they're at their spiritual height, to them, this is something which is, Terrible, absolutely terrible. It's something which even made sense. You know, the society was living at that level where that indeed made sense. And I think it's possible for us, you know, if we gain more sensitivity and commitment and dedication to the Torah, you know, and the fact that God says something, and that alone should should make someone's refusal to accept that so heinous. How could you? How could? How could it? A created entity say to the creator, "I'm not doing what you want." You know, well, doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what I think about it. You're the creator. You know, I think that there's a chance the Jewish people will once again get that get that sensitivity, and then whatever the Torah says, of course, it, you know. And there are people that should think that every sin should be executable on pain of death. How, you know, how terrible it is for someone to say no to God when the nation is at that level. Okay, then we have that kind of treatment. When we're not at the level, well, then the court is not designed to just give mass mass punishment to everyone uh, when they're not holding at that level. Go ahead. You know what else? I also think it, that we're also saying that man cannot judge man. The punishment can, only can come from the shame. Yeah. That you're going you're gonna to get, you're gonna yeah. get yeah. the punishment maybe that's true, and we, that's why the court wants to avoid it, because the Almighty is much better at selling, settling stores. Okay, now let's, so, let's, so that's the, um, I, think the, I think that makes it a lot easier to understand the somewhat, the severity of, the, of what Torah, I'll just do a second, uh, of, what, of what Torah says is the punishment. And like I said, it's for a lot of different things. Uh, the Torah gives very uh, severe punishments. This is, you know, no different than Shabbat. It's no different. And it, it's not we, this, this alone is not something which is unique that needs to be examined, uh, you know, so critically necessarily. Go ahead. Some people claim that uh, those people that they act this way, there is uh, there is a difference in their claim compared to regular people. Yes. Um, and people do what their brains tell them to do. So if Hashem created their brain the way it is, and they are acting based on their, what their brain says, so who is in fault here? Yes, yeah, so that's, that is the best question. that We're going to get to that after we clear away all the... I mean, that, that's the core question, really. The question is at its strongest. Uh, if we are to say, now that whatever you're saying is not, it's not, it's not, it's not agreed upon by everyone. It's a debate. This is called the famous nature versus nurture debate. Uh, in this area, amongst other areas. 
Um, but if uh, someone's um, um, tendencies in this area are designated to him or her by God, then it doesn't seem like the tendencies are something that they ought to be punished for or ought to be thought less of. It's a very good question. We'll get to it in a second. Now, um, I want to talk about perhaps just let's talk about what happened in America. We'll get to what happened in Israel a little bit later on. Um, so I think the question that we have to ask um, from a legislative perspective is um, do we think that it is the American government's job to adjudicate Torah law? No? Everyone agrees no? Right? Does anyone think that the, that, the, that the city of Houston should make a ban on Jews driving on Shabbat? Is anyone even the most religious and fanatic person in the world? Why? Because it's not the secular government's job to enforce Torah law. And you know what? We don't want them forcing Christian law on us. So we, don't want them, we don't want the Muslims forcing Muslim law on us. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that, that, that we're, we're, better, we're much better off. And I don't know anyone who even advocates that. I think you know, we can say very plainly that uh, if the government should do what the government does, and it doesn't necessarily have to be governed by what we think is true and moral. Uh, and I think so. Um, you know, I think if, if, if someone believes in the Torah, believes in God, and is a Torah observant you 100%, can they still be in favor of, of legalization of gay marriage? I think yes. Why? Because... Why not? Why not? Just like you're in favor of legalization of Jews driving on Shabbat, right? What's the difference? There's no difference, right? Both things are prohibited by, by Torah, and both things, uh, maybe it's not the government's job to uh, take what the Torah says into account. I, I don't know. Why should you think otherwise? No, I think it's, you know, should the Torah say that Jews are not allowed to into McDonald's? I'm sorry. So the government, the city of Houston, say that if you're Jewish, you're not allowed. You're not, you, you won't be served at McDonald's. Why not? It's against the Torah because we say secular government, United States, city of Houston, state of Texas, right, Harris County should not be using Torah law to formulate their laws. Similarly, what's the difference? What's the difference? Tell me what the difference is. Between what? Between not allowing Jews to go into McDonald's and and and. Because and banning gay marriage. What's the difference? Well, because the because the government already has laws about regular marriage. Okay, Lady so marriage. yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that someone which, has which, to be. And marriage is really a religious function. Shouldn't maybe yes, but some people would some people some, some people would disagree with you. I I, I have been, I'm saying I agree with you. I I understand, I understand that your perspective, but the question is, is your perspective the only perspective that someone is allowed to have? if they're a Torah observant Jew? That's my question. And I say no. Just at the time would say, Rabbi, I think I learned this in another class, that, that Jews are you're supposed to obey the laws of the land? That's, uh, that's not the question. The question is, that's not, uh, for sure, that's, that's absolutely but true. Um, but our particular question that we're having right now is, must a Torah observant Jew be in favor of the legislative ban on gay marriage because of their Torah beliefs? I say no. And I think it's it's it's. Um, I'm not now. Once again, just to be clear, I'm not saying my particular stance on this issue. All I'm saying is that the Torah does not mandate that one have such a stance, have a prohibitive stance on this issue. But how about the spin to make them special? What about special? Uh, they have more, with more rights than the heterosexuals because they are 
listen, let the government decide or let the legislature decide as Jews, assuming, let's say, we were in the Congress, would we be, would we be mandated by Torah law to try to impose Torah law on the United States of America? I say no. Of course not. Of course not. So that's why, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I think someone can very, the legislative issue is very clear. So I'm trying to clear away problems here. Um, I, I think that the real problem is, is what Esther brought up, and that is, what if, what if the Almighty implanted within men, certain men, a desire of same-sex attraction, yet the Torah, on the other hand, prohibits them from doing that? That's the core, I think, the best question, the best conflict. Now, I want to point out, it's very clear, there are a lot of people that uh, don't necessarily agree that someone is either born gay or born straight. Um, a lot of people say that it's the surroundings or the, 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 the circumstances, or, you know, it's something that is nurtured in, you know. Um, additionally, a lot of people talk about some sort of spectrum. And therefore, someone may have a greater tendency towards homosexuality than someone else, but it doesn't mean that they are one or the other. I say both. Huh? I say both. Some of them are born, and some of them... Because right, I'm just saying that there are a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. It's not absolutely clear that, that, that someone is one or the other. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, that... But let's assume that it is. And I, I think that our question really zeroes in the ethical dilemma of how the Torah can prohibit someone from doing something if God mandated him to do that or to desire that. That's the best question. Now, I'm not clear, personally, I don't think that's true. I don't think that they're, they're one or the other. That's right. It could be the same thing. They have the desire, but also they have the strength to control. Okay, so so let's assume. But let's assume for a second. Let's assume for a second that uh, that someone is wired, right, hardwired to have same-sex attraction. Now, personally, I'll tell what I think. I have no evidence to back this. I'm going to sure give a quick. This is in parenthetically. I think that it's some sort of spectrum. And some people have a greater tendency for same-sex attraction than others. Okay. Um, but it's not one or the other. It's not like it's, it's hardwired one way or the other. That, that, that's what I think. But I, I want to point out that the Torah says a lot of things that are 100% perfectly natural and are banned by Torah law. Right? I'll give you some examples here. Um, for a normal, straight, healthy, whatever, any term you want to use, man, was a heterosexual. Is it perfectly natural, normal? Is it in any way against their nature to desire their neighbor's wife? Absolutely not. At a base level, no. Absolutely not. So the same question I'll ask you. I'll turn it back in your head. How can the Torah tell me, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife? What do you mean? I am... Not a homosexual, I'm a heterosexual. And I have a desire for, for my neighbor's wife. It's perfectly natural. And it's not in any way something, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spend this question. What about someone who likes cheeseburgers, who likes his people showing around? It's perfectly natural. The desire is not the act. That's absolutely true. Right? And this is what life is about. Life is an arena where we are given challenges and we are giving desires that are against the Torah. If all our desires were in line with the Torah, would there be any meaning for following Torah? 
It would be purposeless. That brings up a question. The 10th commandment says you shall not covet. Oh, okay. it, do, it doesn't get into the act. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. So how is it possible to not covet? So clearly what it's telling you on the 10th, on the 10th commandment is that what the Torah is essentially de- demanding of us is a step further, is not even to have the desire. That is a tall, you know, that is something... With, so, so, so clearly what the Torah understands is that's also possible to achieve. <coughs> and my grandfather would famously, would quote the famous Ibn Ezra. There's a famous commentary in the Torah, uh, one of the evil commentaries that says that if you look at the first and the Ten commandment, right, faith, and you look at the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, this is essentially an entire realm, an entire spectrum of faith. It starts with the most simple to the most complex. The most simple level of faith is to have faith in God. The most complex level of faith is to have such a degree and a realization and a cognition and a recognition of the fact that God gives you what you need and God gives someone else what they need and what they need is not what you need what you need is not what they need that that belief penetrates to them to such a degree that they don't even des- desire their neighbor's wife. That is what the 10th commandment is about. Right? So yes, it is demanded upon us. True. I'm, I'm going to point that out. Um, and there are some instances where we're going to have to try to... I mean, but, but that's a very high level, of course. That, that's the ultimate manifestation of faith. I'm not saying it's not for everyone. I'm saying it is for everyone. But that's also for everyone. Something. Um, but back to our point here. Um, and Rabbi Noah Weinberg, famous uh, Rosh Hashiva of Asia, founder of Asia Torah. If you've heard of Asia Torah, uh, H.com. Uh, so he once he, he he would tell his students. He would say, "Listen, can you marry a blonde and a brunette? Is it possible?" Yes, maybe with the hair dye nowadays. Who knows, right? Um, it's not possible. You know? So life demands that we learn to control ourselves and to say no to ourselves and even things that are 100% natural autism was 100% natural right a lot of things are you know and, and there's there's a great many more percentage of, of people that are heterosexual and most, everyone knows you're heterosexual you realize that you desire things the Torah says no to and that's not a conflict because we realize that the Torah demands us to become great now how do you become great by just going along with the flow or by challenging yourself. That's exactly right. right? Who, is the, who, is the, who is the mighty one? He who controls, right? who, he who conquers his Yetzirah. That's what life's all about. The fact that I have this desire and someone else has that desire, does that fundamentally mean anything? Why should that fundamentally change anything? But is, is being homosexual, is that a, well, a force of the Yitzhara though? Well, not necessarily. Well, 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 slow down. But you just said words that we don't know. You know, if we, they're correct. Being a homosexual, we have no idea what that even means. Well, being attractive to the same sex um, is that is that from your yitzhara? Well, that, that that may be your yitzhara. Everyone has their own yitzhara. You know, everyone has a tailored, tailor-made um, area of challenges in their lives. You know, some people are quick-tempered. You know what the Talmud says about people that are quick that that, that, that get angry? What does the Talmud say? Anyone else? Huh? Right. Not only that, it says, call me Gehenom Sholtimbo. Someone who gets angry, all kinds of Gehenom uh, control him, dominate him. And you know what the Maimonides and the Zohar say about someone who gets angry? Call Hakoes, 
He who gets angry, ilu as if they commit idolatry. Yeah, that's what it says. Crazy. And is that sometimes normal? You see kids that get angry? Yes. Well, what does the Torah demand of us to not get angry? That's what the Torah demands of us. The Torah demands a lot of great things from us. Someone may have tremendous, tremendous desires for things that are pro- prohibited, whether that be in the heterosexual realm or the homosexual realm or the area of, of, of anger or the area of giving charity or the area of not speaking Lashon Ra or in whatever area of life that they have. And they have to overcome and become great. Charity, we are talking about extreme charity? No, I'm talking about between 10 and 20%, like Maimonides writes. That's the halakha. Okay. Versus being a 10, is an av- 10 is average and 20 is pious. That's what he says. Some, somewhere between, Jimmy, between 10 and 20. That's it. Not me, I'm saying. Torch. No, not torch, I'm saying. <laughs> that's what the Torah is demanding of us. And is that easy? No. You hard work, work hard for your money. Is it easy to just part with 10, 20% of it? No. Of course not. Well, how does the Torah demand to do something which is very hard? <laughs> that's what the Torah does. That's exactly what life's all about. The fact that someone has challenges that are different than mine, so that someone a different Yetzirah than mine, does not make us fundamentally that different. It doesn't. So, I think that, that that's, really the, that's really the answer. The answer is, first of all, what's the question? To realize what the question is. The question is that our attitude towards what the Torah says um, or, or our attitude towards homosexuality is very different from what the Torah says but you know what there's a lot of things that f- fall, fall under that category like we, you know, we, like we said you know, and we feel naturally desired to do a lot of the Torah, Torah bans and the Torah still bans them but the Torah demands us become great and you only become great if you overcome yourself so the, so the Torah only prevents uh, homosexual couples from having sex it yes. doesn't prevent them from being together. Well, what does that even mean? Can you have a, not, a, 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 a male roommate? I had many, many, many real male roommates over my years in yeshiva. Male what? Male roommates. That's a big, that's a difference. No big deal. Is that, what, is that what you're asking? No, I'm saying, uh, well, I'll give you an extreme example. I don't want to make it crazy, but supposing you just wanted to be with a man and you had that tendency, but you didn't have sex. So that would be okay. Is that allowed? Why not? Can you hold each other? Can you snuggle? Can you kiss? You just can't have sex. That's it. That's what you said. Yeah, well, the question is, is is it good to try to encourage that kind of behavior? I think that might be a bad idea because you're just tempting yourself more and more. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't. Well, the Torah doesn't say anything about I don't know. Yeah, so I, I don't know of any source that says that, you know. So a man can love a man. Just oh, yeah, I love Dave. Yeah, I can't do anything about it. That's what you're talking well, about. Well, I can't study. do anything about it. <laughs> but I mean, yes, yeah. but I mean, you can love somebody and have that relationship. Example, supposing you have two older men and they desire to be together, right. but they're not capable. But that doesn't mean they're not capable of having an erection, they're not capable of having sex, right. but they want to be together because they love each other. So that's not prohibitive of the time. Correct? So it's not prohibitive. Yeah, you're right. No. Yeah, they're not using each other like a woman. They're not, they, are they, yeah, they're not lying with their life, like, long lives of the woman. What's the prohibition? Penetration? Touching, no, not touching. It's, it's, it's touching. the act. It's the sexual yeah. act. That's right. I think what you said was really valid. I don't think we heard you about the reason, one of the reasons not to do that is to waste the seed. Uh, yes, that's true, but, but however, however, by that measure, uh, one would not 
be able to have um, unconventional intercourse with their wife either, and that's not necessarily true. You get what I mean? I, I, no, I had heard that somewhere. <laughs> that now, but that's what I'm saying. Maimonides says every, whatever, saying the halacha, the Torah says, the Talmud says, that that, that would not be prohibited. Uh, however, it's not clear that that would even include uh, spilling seed. Thus, okay, okay. however, if, if, a, if a man sleeps with another man, but does not spill seed, he is still encroaching on this prohibition. So it's not necessarily that. I did hear it, by the way. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what happened in Israel. Um, this is um, a tremendous tragedy. I think of, uh, I, I have no words, no, re- almost no words really to talk about it, but I, but I, I organized my thoughts on this issue. Um, what this guy did, um, for those of you who maybe don't know what happened, I guess there was some sort of parade in Jerusalem. There's been a parade in Jerusalem, a gay pride parade. Yeah. Yeah. It was Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? It was Jerusalem. It wasn't Tel Aviv. And there was a man whom, uh, who was released nearly a couple of weeks ago from prison because of what he did at a gay pride parade in, 19, in 2005. And, yeah, he was sitting, or, so 2003, whatever it was, whatever. Uh, well, I think he was, he was supposed to be in jail for 12 years, and he was only in jail for nine. That's what I heard. He was with, yeah. What, he took a knife in 2005 and jumped into the paraders and started stabbing people indiscriminatorily. They put him in prison for nine years. He did it again a few days ago, and he killed someone. Okay? Young girl. Now, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, uh, no, just hold that thought, because I don't agree with what you said at all. Okay. At all. N- not one little bit do I agree with what you said, and I'll explain to you in all sources. Uh, now, let's be clear. What this guy did has absolutely no basis in Jewish law. I want to make this abundantly clear. There is absolutely... No justification for what this person did. Zero. Zilch nada. And then not only that, he did something which is one of the most grave sins someone could possibly do. And I have sources to buy. We'll read all those sources here. First of all, someone may say, hey, we have Pinchas. Possible corollary. Pinchas, right? Pinchas is the one who went and stabbed the guy in the middle of the act. Right? We read it a few weeks ago in the Parsha. The, I think someone may argue, erroneously, but someone may argue that this guy uh, who did this act was acting in some way like Pinchas. I want to point out, the Talmud says, number one, that um, if you're familiar with what happened with Pinchas and Zimri, essentially Zimri was a Jew who was sleeping with a non-Jewish princess in a public and brazen fashion to spite God and to spite Moses. And Pinchas, Moses... Uh, uh, Moses' nephew, or I guess grandnephew, whatever, he came and he snuck in a knife and he stabbed the guy. Uh, However, he did it while he was in the act. And Thomas says that if you see such an act, um, Halacha says, yes, that if, that someone who does a brazen, defiant, and public act, and they're in the act, and someone kills them, they don't, they don't get, that's not considered murder. 
However, let's assume, for, for example, that Zimri, the other guy, is sleeping with this non-Jewish princess, okay? And then he withdraws. And then Pinchas kills him. He kills him a half a second afterwards. Pinchas is a murderer who is executed. Thus, the only instance that someone is allowed to be, to, to, to zealously murder someone is in the act, number one. Number two, that that act cannot be the act of homosexuality. Even if there was an act of homosexuality, that would not be allowed. Only if someone is publicly, brazenly, defiantly sleeping with a non-Jew, non-Jewish woman that would be, only then would that be prohibited, per- permitted, or not permitted, but would that not be considered murder. Thus, not only is it not related to Pinchas in the actual instance of what happened, but even assuming it was the same thing, it wasn't in the act. Thus, there's absolutely no justification for, uh, or any Jewish basis for what this person did. Not only that, I want to say another point here, that murder is one of the unforgivable and irrevocable sins. The Talmud says that the verse says that when someone, there's some sins that someone does that you cannot possibly do tshuva for, you cannot possibly repent for it. And one of them is murder. Why? Because you can never bring the person back. No matter how much, no matter how much prayer and repentance and confession and all that a person does, murder is irrevocable. It's one of the, it's, it, 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 it's repentance is impossible. I want to read you a quote from Maimonides here. And he says like this, even though there are sins that are worse than murder, still nothing destroys the world like murder. And even idolatry is not as bad, and even um, all, the, uh, all the sexual sins, and even desecrating the Shabbat, none of them are as bad as, as murder. Why? Because the, all those other sins are sins between man and God. However, murder is a sin between man and man. And, and this is the last line I want to underline here. And whoever has the sin of murder, he is a Rasha Gamur. He is a completely wicked person. I'm going to repeat that. A completely wicked person. What do you say about that guy again? What do you call him? Remind me. What I said? Yeah. What I well, what do you read? Ultra ultra. Right, let, me, let me tell you what I read. A completely wicked person. This is what the Ramam says, not what the, I don't know, CNN says. A completely wicked person. And all the mitzvahs, the entire totality of the mitzvahs that a person may, that, that person may do in, the, in his entire life cannot equal the gravity of the sin that he did. Right? And nothing will save him from judgment. That's what we say about that person. You, call, you, call him, you may call him an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I call him a murderer and a completely wicked person. And mine's sourced in Maimonides, not just in, right? Not only that, a murderer has no portion of the world to come. When it says that someone loses the portion of the world to come, you know what that means? Let me tell you what it means. It means that they are not part of the Jewish people. They're not part. Because Jewish people have a portion of the world to come. And no matter how many sins someone does, they're still part of the Jewish people. Unless they do something which is so terrible and so heinous that they lose their status of being a Jew, and therefore they're not part of the Jewish people, and therefore they have no portion of the world to come. Right? If someone... Huh? Who? Who cares? Yeah, I don't know, maybe 50, 45, I have no idea. Um, thus, okay, if someone's a homosexual, they lose a portion of what to come? 
No. If someone desecrates the Shabbat every single Shabbat of their lives for the entirety, right, while being homosexual, do they lose a portion of what to come? No. If someone commits idolatry, do they lose a portion of what to come? Yeah. So, which is adultery? No. no, they do not lose they a. Do not. Well, not necessarily. Well, I mean, yeah, well, well, yes, maybe. They, they might, they might, they, they, they might, because idolatry is something which is, is, which is so severe, right? But most. Someone could be a sinner, they're still part of the Jewish people. Even though someone sins, they're still part of Israel. If someone's a murderer, they're out. Thus, you call him someone who's part of the Jewish people, or is an Orthodox Jew, you know, this is a tremendous sinner, complete sinner. And it's an entire disgrace, an entire nation. What's the significance to you that that terminology doesn't? No, because because this is the reason. One of the reasons why I'm speaking about this issue is because it's a it's a total besmirchment of the Torah, where someone says, "Hey, this guy's a Torah observant Jew." Well, no, we just saw he's not a Torah observant Jew. What if he's? Well, even if he was. Yeah, that's. He's not. We, but the, even but, if he was before, before yes. he, he committed the crime. I think they just put it in the paper to incite us. That's probably true. So we're responding. Now let's ask you guys a question. What do you say about the really pious rabbi who eats pork in Yom Kippur? The really pious ultra-Orthodox rabbi who eats pork in Yom Kippur. What do you say about him? Well, he wouldn't be a pious rabbi and eat pork. But he's, not a, he's not a pious rabbi. He's not, is he very religious? Is he ultra-Orthodox? Is he observant? Is he Torah observant? No. What if he has a really long beard? Right. Huge pious. Doesn't mean anything. Right? Your that's actions, awesome. that's what determine who you are. Your actions, right. your beliefs, what you that's say, right. the three realms of, of who you are. That is what determines what, what you are. Just because someone can have a really nice beard and looking really religious, you know, it doesn't mean that someone is living in accordance with the Torah. I have a great line here I wrote here in my notes. Can I read it to you guys? Yeah. Osama bin Laden cannot be classified as a pious Jew despite the fact that he had a long beard and lots of kids. Someone will say, hey, I see this guy with one beard. He has a lot of kids. He must be a really, really pious Orthodox rabbi. Well, no. Just because someone looks really observant, but if they behave in a way that Maimonides writes about them, they're completely wicked, and Maimonides writes they lose a portion of what they come, they're not someone that is any way representative of anything that we talk about. So they're sort of kicked out. You're kicked out. Well, I... Maybe it's just the <laughs> you know, um, just because someone looks like, and, and, and to me it's even worse. It's worse because not only is he such a terrible person, but he makes all the, he makes the Torah look bad. Because people identify him with the Torah because of the way he looks. And therefore, they attribute his behavior to the Torah. So it makes it all that much worse. Not only is this a completely wicked person, Via their activities, and someone who has no portion of what to come, says Maimonides, yeah, and acts in no way based the Torah, but they ev- they're even worse because they cause a chilashem. They also make every Jew in the world look bad. That's also true. Yeah, not only that, but they make the Torah look bad, and they make the Jewish people look bad. That, that's what I want to say about this guy. But now, uh, my last point here, um, and that is that despite, you know, this is not the way to go about doing this. Um, I want to read also one more thing here. Let me read one more thing here. This is a, um, a, a, a statement by the chief rabbis of Israel, Rabbi uh, Yitzchak Yosef and Rabbi David Lau, that they put in today's paper. This is in English. Can I read it to you guys? Yeah. The Torah of Israel is a Torah of life. Quote is the verse, right? Its ways are the ways of pleasantness, and its paths are the paths of peace. Anyone who merely raises his hand against his friend is called an evil person. If you lift your hand to hit someone, 
You're, the Talmud says you're a Russia. You're a wicked person. And all the more so is that someone who actually harms his friend with words or causes bodily damage, and heaven forbid if he causes even more harm than that. In the name of all the rabbis and all the rabbinical judges in Israel, we condemn any acts of violence whatsoever against any person who is created in the image of the Almighty, whether Jew or non-Jew, soldier or citizen. Violence is not the way of our holy Torah and is completely forbidden to act in any way or situation in this manner. With prayers for unity and harmony in our nation, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef and Rabbi David Lau. Um, I think they hit the nail on the head. And that is that this person was is a Russia. Maman is not just a Russia, Russia Gamur. Complete, complete, complete wicked person. And they did not act in a way that's in any way representative of what the Torah says. Is it true there's no death penalty in Israel? That's right. They're not death unfortunately. Unless if your name's Eichmann. Eichmann, right. Eichmann's the only one who yeah, got it. They did. People don't want to talk about that man that the Jewish guy that burned somebody's home. And a baby was burned. I have a question, though. I mean, what if this Okay, assuming that this person is certifiably insane, then... I don't know if they're insane. Let's let's say that that's the case. I mean, number one, if that's the case, who determines that? And if so, then how would this... I don't think they're insane. I don't think they're insane. I think that they're deranged, maybe, and I think that they're evil, Mm -hmm. and I think that they're... uh, you know they, that they're they're a classic example of misdirected zealotry, or you know. Okay. Um, do I think? Do I, I assume this guy would is probably very particular at how he observes Shabbat, for example. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure he thinks he's doing what's right, but we just saw the verse. We saw the sources. It's Did it's he say clear. Anything when he was doing? I don't know. I don't know the details of the you read up about it. I, to me, it was it, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't look at I couldn't look at any of this. Could I kill that guy in the, while he's doing the act though? Yes. I, I think absolutely true. This person in the act of what he was doing, he would be considered a rodef, a pursuer, and they would be fair game. Uh, you would, in fact, you'd be obligated by Torah law to stop him by any means possible. Um, that being said, I want to say a last point here. Um, there is absolutely no place for quote-unquote gay pride in Israel. And I just want to read you a verse from Leviticus. There's a bunch of verses from Leviticus. Right after it talks about all the lists of the sexual sins that the Jewish people should not do, the Torah says as follows. This is a, just a direct quote. Do not be contaminated through any of these. For through all of these, the nations that I expel, you, that I expel before you have become contaminated. Like God's telling the Jewish people, you're about to go to the land of Israel. Don't do all these sins. Why? Because the people that are in there, they do all these sins. The land became contaminated, and I recalled its iniquity upon him, and the land vomited its inhabitants. Essentially, what the Torah is describing here is the, excuse me, the immune system of Israel. Israel is an immune system, and there are certain things that it is, uh, it, it, it is, it, it, it's, it's immune, it, it, it's repulsed by, it's allergic to, it's allergic to this kind of behavior, all those pro- prohibited sexual uh, activities. And what happened, why did the Jewish people get in the line of Israel? Why did they, they marry the line of Israel? You know why? It wasn't because of the Jewish people, necessarily. It's because the people that were in there were evil, and the land has a quality that it expels foreign intruders. Just like our body, when you eat something that is unhealthy for you, your stomach is programmed to expel it. Similarly, Israel is holy, and it expels uh, uh, impurity. And, listen, and, and, and that's why the Jews shouldn't do it. And, and the Torah goes on further. But you shall safeguard my decrees and my judgments and not commit any of these abominations. The native and the proselyte who lives one. Don't do these things. Why? For the inhabitants 
uh, of the land who were before you committed all these abominations and the land became contaminated, let the land not vomit you for having contaminated it as it vomited the nation that was before you. What it's saying is like this. God's telling him, God's telling Jewish people, the land is essentially agnostic. It doesn't matter who's in the land. The land cannot tolerate impurity. The, the people that were there, they contaminated the land spit them out. You go in there, you contaminate it, the land will spit you out as well. And it's happened. Yeah. And it's happened multiple times. Yeah. And I think that if we read that, we have to realize that, yes, everyone has their areas and challenges that, that, you know, that are difficulties for them. Um, and no one's perfect. No one tries to say anyone's perfect. And we all have areas in life that we need to strengthen. But to try to make a parade in Israel, take pride in a sin that the, that the Torah says, this is a sin that is incompatible with the land of Israel, I think that there's no room for that. I'm not trying to judge anyone, any individual or you know, any entity, well, maybe entities, yes, but no individual for what the challenges that the Almighty gave them. But when we read the Torah, it becomes very clear that such an attitude, at least a public embrace of such behavior, doesn't jive with the land of Israel. Um, what that guy did uh, is a heinous murder. Um, and, and that is absolutely not the way that we respond to this. The Torah responds to this. That's not the way to the Torah, like we saw in the letter of the chief rabbis. That's not the way you go about this. Uh, however, what's absolutely clear is that such, such a, uh, a, a parade, uh, such a cavalcade of impurity is also very much out of place from the Torah's perspective, especially the land of Israel. In America, I think it's different. You read the verse. There's something about the land of Israel. It, it doesn't tolerate that. And it says that directly after the, the sins. All the, you know, imagine if they had a sin, a parade, an uh, adultery parade. It would be the same thing. This is, what the, this, is not what the la- this is not what the land of Israel is about. This, is, this has no place in the land of Israel. So I think in conclusion here, let's just try to you know, recap everything that we mentioned. Um, our goal, as we said, is to try to approach it honestly, um, sensitively, um, and critically, and from a source-based perspective. We know what the Torah says about the issue. The Torah is unequivocal. There's no way to wiggle out of what the Torah actually says about the issue. Uh, it makes it abundantly clear that it is not in favor of such behavior. Now, what does it mean, such behavior? I said behavior because I mean behavior, not because of... The Torah is not against homosexuals or gays. The Torah says, do not do such. Just like the Torah is not against people that... Uh, you know that, that desire things that are prohibited it's again people that act upon it number one number two it is very very severe in its, in its, uh, in its uh, punishment like it is for many things uh, however we have to realize that that's not in a practical sense necessarily it's more a, a reflection of the Torah's attitude to the severity of that issue uh, we talked about the legislative uh, perspective that we have to have in uh, in the United States, and I think that we're pretty much fair game. We could go which, whichever way we wanted on that issue. Um, I, I think it's okay if someone says, hey, I'm governed by the Torah's morality, and the Torah says that this is bad, and therefore I think it's bad, and therefore I'm against gay marriage. Or I think someone could also say, listen, this is the law of the land, it's the law of the United States, and if this is what people want, uh, so be it. And it's not my job, my job to judge them, or it's not the U.S. government's job to be governed by Torah law. I think either perspective is fine. Uh, whichever, one, whichever way you go, I don't think you're going to be running afoul with what the Torah says. 
Um, the ethical question, that was the real area, uh, uh, the issue um, of conflict uh, in this matter. Uh, and that we have to first understand, well, is it really an ethical issue or not? Uh, or to what degree is it an ethical issue? Is it, is it something that someone was made to desire this or not? Or does someone progressively on their own uh, kind of incite themselves to have such a desire? Or is it some sort of spectrum? It's not so clear. But either way, it's not such a great phenomenon. It's not some sort of uh, uh, novelty that, that the Torah bans something that is very natural and very normal for people to desire. There's many things, and the Torah is clearly demanding great things from us. Whatever it is that our Sahara is compelling us to do, it is very strong, it is very potent, and our number one job in life is to battle it. The Talmud says, Yitzra shal adam mechadash alam yom. Every day, your Yitzhah renews its battle against you. Right? And every day, your Yitzhah overcomes you and, and, and has a mighty conquest of you. That's what life is. It's a daily struggle with a Yitzhah. For some people, it is in areas that uh, are jive with what society says. And some people, it is in areas that uh, do not seem to, to, you know, to, to, to be compatible with what society says. It doesn't matter. The Torah designs for each and every one of us an entire life of conflict with our Yetzirah, and that is how we grow, that's how we become great. So we just have to accept what the Torah says, period. Well, with really no knowledge of why or... Well, we could ask that question, but I, I think that, that whatever the answer to the question of why is, um, that doesn't necessarily matter. That's my point. I'm saying, I think it, it, you could say, hey, like the Torah bans tattoos. I'm giving you an example that's... Uh, Right? Torah says you shouldn't have tattoos. Well, why did Torah say that? You could say, oh, well, that tattoo is a pagan practice. Right? However, the Torah doesn't say, hey, don't have, do not have a tattoo uh, so long as it's a pagan practice. And I would still argue that even today it's a deviant practice, more often than not. Yeah, I was just thinking about if you write two letters on Shabbos. Right, so, so actually, we have to understand. So you just have to accept that. We have to understand. The Torah itself says that Shabbat is an act of faith read what the Torah says. When you observe the Shabbat, you are testifying to God's creation. Thus, when the, con- the converse of that would be that if someone desecrates Shabbat, well, then they're not testifying to God's creation. So we have to understand that, of course. I mean, you know, we, we, the Torah isn't just, you know, obviously, we, we have a whole Torah, and Torah is there to explain things to us. And we have a whole Talmud, and we have the whole Midrash, and all the, you know, the commentaries. We have a lot out there, you know, to, to, of meaning and insight behind that. I'm just saying, um, that won't necessarily change what the Torah is. And like we said, the Torah is immutable, and we cannot say, oh, what we think is supreme, what the Torah thinks has to be dependent to what we think. Um, lastly, what we spoke about what happened in Israel, uh, the great tragedy that happened, and the one thing, if this is the only thing you walk away with, is that is abundantly clear with all the sources, and if you want the sources, just email or text me or call me, and I'll give you all the sources, that what this person did was in no way under no circumstances, in any way whatsoever, uh, uh, on Torah roots or Torah basis, they acted against the Torah. They acted in a way that uh, that we label them a Rosh Gamor. But they acted in a way that they lose a portion of what they come. Clearly, they're not doing what the Torah wants them to do. And the fact that we're told that they're ultra-Orthodox or very Orthodox or very religious or very observant or blonde, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything and it shouldn't mean anything to us. Right. Uh, however, a very important point is that we do not accept the idea of gay pride in Israel. The Torah is very clear about it. We don't go ahead and 
express our delight in, in, in a sin that the Torah tells us that this sin will cause our expulsion from the land. At least we're Jewish people. Oh yeah, that, that's, the, why so tra- that's why it's so tragic. That's why it's so tragic. I was astounded when I read that that happened there. It's, it's unimaginable. It unimaginable. Was, was that the first time they had a that parade in Jerusalem? I no, know they've had it until they have for that, a while. No, they have, they've had it for, for many, many years now in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's every year it's a huge source of conflict um, most of the rabbis in Jerusalem say to the observant community ignore it ignore it, just ignore it uh, and then there are some people, hot headed people that say no we have to stand up and we have to make a uh, we have to, you know, we have to protest it um, but this obviously, clearly as we see from what the tragedy that happened that being hot-headed does not necessarily produce the best results. Uh, once again, uh, the rabbis, in their foresight, uh, were right when they said, just ignore it, just avoid it, uh, even though we realize that it has no place in, in Israel. And we realize that, uh, we, like, we, like we discussed. So that's that, guys. Um, Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, you know what? What about the concern about being vomited out of the land? Then you tell me. I don't know. That's that's got to be the concern. It's of yes. A lot of people the, there. Then. Doesn't it doesn't doesn't mean you go and start stabbing people? For sure. Mm-hmm. Right. That's yeah, absolutely I'm right. Not that, but. Um, so that's that. Uh, I, I think that's, that. That's also a Hebrew yetzer The guy who stabbed. No, it's not his yetzer That's his evilness. There's only yetzer for murder. That's no, anyway. not a, it's not a normal desire to go stab people. No, that's evil. That's not Yetzirah's evil inclination, but uh, that's that is that is the worst thing that someone could do. We read the Maimonides. That's not his Yetzirah. His Yetzirah is that he. Sh- I don't know what he meant. He killed someone. It's, he killed. He injured a whole bunch of people. It's it's, it's such a tragedy. He meant to hurt somebody. He went in there with a knife. He wasn't planning on killing. Yes, yeah, so it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's a very, very sad day in, 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 I think the entire Jewish community should mourn about what happened. Um, what you said about people have, everybody has their challenges, and state people have more so. No, I, and I, I, you know, I, and someone once asked me, I once spoke about this, uh, someone asked me, hey, what would you tell, what, what would you say uh, if the room was full of gay kids? Well, and I told them, I said, uh, t- to me, what I would say to them is that the Almighty has faith in you guys that you can overcome tremendous challenges. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not envious of your challenge, uh, but if the Almighty gives you a challenge, clearly he believes in you and your ability to overcome it. Can, you know? Can a gay or homosexual teach Torah? First of all, I, I disagree with the labeling of someone as homosexual, because okay. I, I already did that once before. But why can not? They teach Torah? Can someone who desires their neighbor's wife teach Torah? Yes. Can someone who likes b- blondes and brunettes teach Torah? Yes. But you're talking about somebody who actually engages in what they're doing, Dave. Yes. Yes. That's different than just. Well, the question is like, the, uh, yeah. Well, that's. Listen, I, 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 every sin that someone does, they could do tshuva for, and the Torah is not contaminated by anyone's sins. Um, I think they could mm-hmm. teach Torah. I mean, they should. They ought to teach Torah. Um, I don't know why they have to be a pariah. I don't think they necessarily have to be a pariah. Listen, what are you gonna, do I want someone who's, do I want two observant Jewish homosexuals to move across the street from me? 
No, I'd rather not because I don't want to have to go through the whole discussion with my kids. Okay? Personally. Uh, you know, if they came to the synagogue, should the synagogue allow them in? I don't know. Should the synagogue allow people that drive to shul shop well, in? I, What's I, the difference? Well, I, Rabbi, I think that's why I think the people that are in that lifestyle, whatever that might be, are conservative and reformed. They're not. They're not. Okay, well, yeah. I, that's, that's, that, that's probably true, but you know, the, the, the core of the issue is, you know, I had, there was a guy in yeshiva with, in, in, when I was in Aish, there was a guy who confided in me that this is his biggest challenge, same-sex attraction. Okay, everyone has the area of challenge, challenges. It's not easy. Yeah, but that's not the act. That's, that, that's the desire. That's true. Um, and everyone has their own collection of challenges that the humanity designs for them. And, you know, and it's, I, to me, that's what I would say. You know, it's, it's not easy, and life's not easy. Life's not meant to be easy. Uh, and if, if someone is struggling and fighting, and someone who is, um, who overcomes sometimes, well, that's the Talmud says it. That's a tzaddik. Tzaddik is someone who overcomes, who engages in the struggle uh, with their Yitzhahara. What if someone sins and does tshuva? Well, the Talmud says mm-hmm. No one here speaks Hebrew. Oh, I guess you do. And it says like this. It says, the Talmud says, and the Ramam quotes it, that in the place where Baalei Tshuva, where people that do Tshuva, where they do repent, uh, where they stand with regards to Olam Haba, even people that never sinned in their life can't stand. That's the greatest level of some, someone who sinned and it does Tshuva. And you know what? My mind says that there's one guy that can't do Tshuva. And that's the murderer. Mm-hmm. Well, can't, can't do tshuva, can't repent. So the fact that someone someone's sins are different than my sins, I don't think that makes them that they have, they have, they have no portion of Judaism. So that's that, guys. And I appreciate that we were able to do this conversation. Yes, uh, in such a uh, thank you. Thank What's your brother coming? Uh, thank you.